welcome to the first episode of Pod Stallions, the official podcast of PlaidStallions.com. Uh, I'm Brian, uh, the, I guess for better word, webmaster. I don't, I don't actually like the word webmaster because uh, it sounds too much like dungeon master of, of PlaidStallions.com, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Or why else would you be listening to this? Uh, joining me uh, on the other side of the continent is my pal Jason Lindsay. Hey, everybody. Uh, I couldn't be more excited to be part of this. Uh, one more little brainchild of Brian Hyler's, as if he doesn't have enough going on. Um, uh, this brand new new podcast. I am very, very excited to be here representing uh, the U.S. Uh, in this competition. <laughs> so I guess we should explain exactly what this is supposed to be. Um, it's, it's not supposed to be topical. Uh, Jason already does a great job of that weekly on the awesome Geek Shall Inherit podcast that if you haven't checked out, you should. And doing topical stuff would just be mowing the same lawn. Also, Jason and I have noticed that we have wheelbarrows of obscure and useless knowledge and <laughs> a shared experience and interest. So if you don't talk about that kind of stuff, it's not fun to have, really. It just gets dusty and cobwebby in your shed. Um, so what this is supposed to be is somewhat retro, but the voice of it is guided by our personal experiences. When we talk about something like, I don't know, Battlestar Galactica, we're not going to go episode by episode. We're going to talk about it, how it affected us in our world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what action figures we had, what we took away from it, what we liked about it or didn't like about it, that sort of thing. Just a, a mutual growing up experience. And that's the first segment of our podcast. We're going to call it Growing Up Blank Blank. So it can relate everything from our favorite SCTV episodes to, um, you know, being collectors in the early 90s to, you know, um, I know we had more topics than this, but I'm, I'm drawing a blank. To our favorite canceled television shows. So every month we hope to just linger on a topic and beat it to death. I think that's the key is the uh, is the lingering. You know, on, on the, the show that I already am, am part of, you know, Geek Shell and Herod, we tend to drop an outline that has a good, you know, 12 to 15 topics on it that have either, you know, occurred in the, in the past, the, the previous week, or uh, that have just been announced or that we've just been exposed to or watched or whatever. And we try to hit each one of them and give a little bit of time. And that, you know, usually we don't get to the full list or we go off on tangents, etc. And so many times, uh, you know, in that framework, in my brain, I'm going, oh, I, w- I could talk about this some more. Like, I wish we didn't have to move on to the next thing. So that's kind of what we're doing here is being able to indulge uh, certain topics and, let them sort of breathe and take their time. And, uh, uh, you know, we've got, a, we've got a lot of ideas already. The other thing, too, is that Brian and I have been friends now um, via the Internet and the phone for a few years. Um, I think I've told the story before, maybe in the intro to the, to the Rack Toys book. But basically it was I stumbled across the Plaid Stallions website. Uh, ages ago, and I don't I don't remember how I stumbled across it. I think it was some other site linked to it for for something. Most people are looking for uh, most people uh, that find my site are looking for vintage lingerie pictures. You know what? That might have been it. Yeah, that was yeah. that was my vintage lingerie uh, period when I was back into the Montgomery Ward catalogs that I had in my uh, closet. Um, and uh, you know, as most people do when they first come across plaid stallions, I couldn't 
I couldn't leave the site. Like I was there for like three hours. Like I had just discovered Christmas morning. Like what is this thing? And I loved it so much and I got so lost on it that I did something that I rarely if ever do. And that was send a note to the guy or whoever ran the thing and said, I just stumbled across your site. I'm in love with it. What a cool idea. Thanks for the memories, yada, yada. And somewhere in there I said who I was and I, I mentioned uh, the Flash Gordon action figures that we that we had uh, just come out with you know, that year or the year before or something. And within 24 hours you replied and you said, oh my God, you're not going to believe – thanks for the compliments, blah, blah, blah. You're not going to believe this. I just bought your action figures like two days ago. Yeah, I found them at a Comic-Con. Yeah, just you just – Found them. I thought, wow, okay, this guy's cool because you know we already dig the same stuff. So from that point on, you know, we 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 discovered very quickly just how much stuff we had in common. And it's interesting because it's 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 all there, and it's like eighty ninety percent there. And then every now and then, because of the U.S. Canadian thing, something sort of is mentioned or a, a topic comes up, and it's just a little different. You know, a show you got a show like a couple years before I did. And it was titled something differently or yeah. whatever. We, and that's what I found fascinating that we're, we're right there, but for a few instances. And it would be fun to, to, to talk about. And hopefully, you know, people will respond that way. But, um, you know, we've had these epic phone calls and, and emails and uh, just kind of are on the same wavelength. So hopefully it's going to translate into these conversations that we're going to have about things and uh, turn people on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and that brings us to our first segment because uh, Jason and I are both uh, lifelong Doctor Who fans, and yeah. we you know the majority of our conversations kind of veer into that. So we thought we would open the first growing up segment with growing up Who, and talk about you know being a Doctor Who fan in the seventies. I cross the void beyond the mind. The empty space that circles time. I see where others stumble blind to seek a truth they never find. Eternal wisdom is my guide. I am the doctor through cosmic waste of time. Can I jump in right away and clarify something sure. in regards to that fandom? Mm-hmm. And here's again. Just what I was what I was just discussing, I was just talking about. We're so similar in so many ways. And when it comes to who, we'll get to this. When your exposure was, uh, the character that you were exposed to, the in, in, incarnation, etc., and how different it is. But also, you you got into the realm of sort of going to shows, and occasionally you would you would dress up, correct? I did it once, yeah. Yeah. You did it once, okay. Yeah. You you just you you were into certain areas of of the fandom that I sort of either missed or or didn't know about or didn't quite get into, and that's always been interesting in the way we talk about this stuff that we're very very similar in the in the stuff that we watched and the in the shows that we liked, uh, but just you know here and there it kind of veers off in a, in a different direction. I think that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. growing growing up, who um, uh, you know let let's let's kick it off, and I'll start by sort of interviewing you and asking you some questions. Yeah, we'll go back uh, for it. Yeah, which uh, my my first you know gut sort of uh, response to that is when when did you first how and when were you first exposed to this this uh, bizarre TV show? Well, you know it's funny. I know from talking to you before that the Americans had it different, but well, I I got exposed to Who on TV Ontario, 
which was an educational channel. And to quantify playing a lot of the British dramas they would, they would host it with a half an hour educational segment. So uh, Doctor Who was hosted by a guy who called himself Dr. Dater, and he was actually a physicist. And he was kind of a hippie-looking guy in a T-shirt, and he would host it out of a phone booth. And then he would explain one of the scientific concepts. So it was kind of a weird thing, and it was very low budget. It was filmed downtown Toronto. Uh, there were Dr. Dater clips on YouTube, but I can't find them anymore. But we we got Pertwee first. Okay, so what year? Uh, what year would you reckon that was? Seventy-five or seventy-six? Because I was five yeah. or six. I was terrified of the show. And I found, you know, Pertwee really serious and scary. And I can remember actually watching his death scene and my dad kind of making fun of the show. And I was like really upset. Like, don't make fun of Doctor Who. And, you know, thinking he was going to get my dad or something. Um, but it was a heavy show. It was like, you know, it, it was a lot for a five or six year old to take. Sure. And, I, I, I to, to jump in right away and parallel that, I my experience was I, I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. That's where I was born. And so I grew up in the Midwest and we always had this, we always felt an affinity uh, with Canada because it, 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 we are the coldest state in the country. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and just some of the humor that we had, the accents, the winter clothing, you know, we always kind of felt a little Canadian. My exposure to who, um, and it's well documented now because, uh, you know, when, when they write the, 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 the tale, the story of how it got exposed to the U.S. and people caught on, was that, in fact, I have a press kit somewhere that I should, I should, I should copy for you and, and send to you um, that was the press kit the BBC put together to tell American, you know, networks, syndicated networks, local stations, you can, you know, get this show, here's how long it's been running. And what they were really pushing were uh, Tom Baker's first uh, two or three seasons. So this has got to be about 1978. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm I'm positive. It's 1978, and what we're getting is Tom Baker's first season, which was 1975 in the UK. So we're already getting it like three years later. And I used to come home in the afternoon distinctly, unless I'm just getting my things, some things mixed up, but I swear back to back was like four o'clock in the afternoon was Battle of the Planets, uh, better known to a lot of folks as G-Force, but it was the G-Force, the the, the Gotcha Man show that was taken and, 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 and sort of edited and, and uh, dubbed into a U.S version in the late 70s and split up and and had new openings and and wraparounds and stuff called Battle of the Planets. And uh, at around 4.30 on, I I think it was syndicated. In other words, you know, America knew Doctor Who as a public television thing. Yeah. I think my first time seeing it was uh, on a local station, like Channel 9 or something. Like a UHF station? No, like like an actual local station that would show, you know, MASH and bewitched and things like that in the afternoons or the, or the weekends. Wow. And it was, again, just what you said. It, I, I couldn't look away. I was fascinated, but I was very disturbed by it because for a number of reasons, it was, it was especially if anybody knows those, those first couple of years of Tom Baker's uh, tenure, it's very unsettling. It's very weird. Uh, it's very, very dark. It's a very gothic sort of dark couple of seasons, but, but really, to my brain, what was the weirdest was this was the first program that I'd ever seen that I didn't understand at the time, but was shot on videotape. 
and had that that very loud live theater kind of look to it. Uh-huh. The ever seen shot that way were sitcoms or or Monty Python. So so to have it in a drama was very unsettling and weird to me that this was a drama and it was British obviously. And I didn't know who this guy was or what the gist of it was. Also, the country, myself included, were Star Wars insane. So, so the reason that Who got pushed so hard in the late 70s by the BBC was it was the closest thing they had to a Star Wars-type property. And so they tried to ride that train as best they could and, and uh, you know, get, it, get it out there. Oh, that's uh, neat. Yeah, so that was, my, that was my first thing. And eventually it became a public television thing you know channel two was our station where you'd have pledge drives and have to try to save it and stuff but you know it's i guess sometimes it's like whatever you sort of fall in love with um whether it's it's the best or not like there are people that fall in love with roger moore because that's what they grew up with and they and they they know the other films are better but uh they love roger moore and they love his films because that's what they what they know and what they were exposed to first so for me those first few seasons of tom baker's um uh run as the doctor in the in the in the in the mid 70s late in late 70s that's all i think of when i think of doctor who and that's what we've certainly tried to emulate in the toys when we've uh, launched the you know the retro figures and stuff um but it was but okay so so now we've we've established that we're watching it, and like anything else that we were into, superheroes, Planet of the Apes, uh, Star Trek, you name it, we were able to then go to the store or the comic rack or the video store, I'm sorry, the toy store, and get the sundries that would, you know, <laughs> we always, you know, we're, we were those kids that were like, well, if that's a show, I want the figure to go with it. Where are the figures? So what, what, at what point in your childhood brain did you go, I got to get to the store and look, look for some, uh, some Doctor Who toys? I, I immediately did that, but just realized there was nothing. I, I, you know, I don't understand how, like, the Denny Fisher dolls that were in England, mm-hmm. uh, they, they obviously got exported to Italy and Australia where Doctor Who was on TV. Why a Canadian toy distributor didn't say, well, this show's on twice a week. Hmm. Why don't I pick this up? But I, I guess maybe because it was on provincially and not across the country. Like I don't know if it was picked up in Quebec or oh, you know. Okay. You know, so maybe maybe that was it. But um, there were a ton of pocketbooks available in Canada. We got all the Target novels. Pocket. Uh, yeah. Oh, paperbacks, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I know you guys got those weird. We uh, got weird covered ones with Harlan Ellison quotes on them and stuff. Yeah. So, so, so I'm, I'm going to the stores looking for this stuff. Um, but, but, but just go back two steps though. Did you understand, did your little brain understand that this was a, a British show? Did you know where it came from? Does that oh, make sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm of, uh, like my mom's family is, is Irish Scottish. So, um, they, you know, we, and can Canadian TV, was inundated like we watched on the buses on prime time and um i grew up on shows like tom gratton's war and 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 phoenix and the carpet which aren't that relevant to you but uh, like you know and, and most most of the stuff tvo played was like simon and the land of chalk drawings and, and different programs they, they had some canadian stuff but they, they played a lot of british programming and i understood it you know yeah the last titles you mentioned the chalk thing and the, what was the one before that 
Uh, Phoenix in the carpet. It sounds like you're making this up. No, it's a, it's a, you know, even my wife knows this one. It's, it's a show where kids are on a magical carpet and this metal bird. I can't, I'd have to watch it again, to be honest with you. Never. Um, yeah, I, I understood that it was British because of, of, of Monty Python and Monty Python's flying circus. Um, I've got cassette tapes blank cassette tapes that we would put in my little tape recorder and my brother Gino and I would tape Monty Python so we could listen to it back. And I've got tapes dated January, February of 77 with me rolling around on the floor laughing. I, I clearly didn't get all the jokes. I was far too young. But something about it appealed to my you know seven-year-old brain. And um, I sort of started to, that's where sort of my love affair with a lot of British stuff kind of started with, I mean, obviously the music was already there cause I was into all the British music, but television and comedy and stuff. And it, it kind of led to, to who. So I went around frantically searching for any kind of merchandise. And I, I do believe the first couple of things that ever got sort of out there. I mean, there was, there was that time frame. This is before, you know, the early eighties where who really started to take off in America where there were these big tours and conventions and the country was kind of who mad in the early, uh, in the early eighties, but 78, 79, um, what happened was this, this influx of shows that got picked up and marketed to the U S started to kind of take off. And, you know, what publications did we have out there that would have reported on this? Well, it wasn't going to be in Newsweek or time or, you know, Ranger Rick or whatever. Yeah, it was it was going to be in Starlog or Fangoria, and yeah. they were first publications. And you know this because you guys got it obviously, and you would pick this magazine up all the time. They were the first publication, if you want to call it mainstream, that uh, that picked up on Doctor Who. And so, I, if I'm unless I'm completely mistaken, my first piece of non you know television or whatever you want to however you want to say it was that third issue of Fangoria. Uh, I have since found it again. It had the movie Prophecy on the cover. There was a big article on uh, Doctor Who, and best of all, a poster that you could pull out, and when you folded it out, it was Tom Baker in the middle, uh, raising you know, his hat on or raising his hand or something, and some of the artwork from the Target novelizations of creatures kind of around him and the logo and that was on my wall in my bedroom for many 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 years until i was about 27 Mm. and um (laughs) uh that was it and from there uh a company called pinnacle grabbed 10 i don't know how they chose these titles but 10 titles to release in america on paperback on the strength of the sales of who to these uh local stations and they put out 10 novelizations Completely different artwork. The, the 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 body of the book was the same as the Target ones, but there were completely different covers that have become very collectible. And I used to trade guys pen pals in the UK uh, stuff. To, to they they wanted these so badly, and they they each one had the same intro from Harlan Ellison. Yeah, he wrote a spectacular five page grumpy essay. <laughs> you could just say essay with him. I think they're all grumpy. Exactly. Um, and his whole thing, I remember the, the opening couple of lines were like, was 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 replaying or, or rewriting. He had just been at a convention. He's up at the podium 
the room is filled with kids in Luke Skywalker pajamas and adult dre- adults dressed like Darth Vader and you name it. And he's up at the podium and he basically says, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but Star Trek is complete drivel. Star Wars will turn your brain into puree of bat guano. And, you know, um, Buck Rogers can, you know, eat it, whatever. Uh, Doctor Who is where it's at. And then he just goes on. And, and, and there's gasps and shocks and <gasps> how dare he at the convention. And then he goes on to say how fantastic the show is and why it's so brilliant. I just dug that up. It's Star Wars is adolescent nonsense. Close Encounter is obscurantist obscure, drivel. Star Trek can turn your brains to puree of bat guano. Very good. And the greatest science fiction series of all time is Doctor Who. And I'll take you all on, one-on-one or in a bunch to back it up. (laughs) That is so Ellison. But I can't believe I – bat guano. I remembered that from that intro. You see, this – everybody listening, this is the essence of what this flippin' show is going to be because – it's it's as if I've waited half my life for someone to ask me that question or something. <laughs> Just been sitting up in a room up in the attic of my brain, waiting for you to open the door, yeah. and, and there it is. And now I never need to think about it again. It's yeah, gone. <laughs> it's it's gone. Go. You free that space up for where your warranties are. Um, yeah, I, I remember those. I was fascinated by the bad art on the well, not bad off model art on the covers. There's, a, there's one there's one cover that. Uh, you know, now that we know what the story is, uh, we didn't know at the time, but it, it's clearly like uh, supposed to be Pertwee's doctor and the master side by side, where like it's it's half of Pertwee's face, half the master, and Pertwee's got like stubble and almost like a beard if it's supposed to be Pertwee, mm-hmm. and the master has the goatee, but it's yeah, it's, and and a lot of the creatures and and ships and other things are 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 the much artistic license, but even better was a logo, a really cool logo. You should, we should put this up, you know, when we put the episode up, look at yeah. logos. Um, just really neat cover art uh, because it was so far removed from anything else. And the logo was completely original uh, and, and a very cool uh, logo. I remember uh, kind of loving that. Yeah, I, I remember that. I think we just got the, because we we were in so in tune with Britain, we got the, the British Target novels here. Um my first collectible uh, that I got from Doctor Who was weird. My neighbors had nephews. They were Irish, and they had nephews that would come over every so often. They were really close. And these guys went to the U.K. all the time. And I traded one of the nephews for his Countdown to TV Action Annual. Oh, wow. From 1973, which had Jerry Anderson's UFO in it and John Pertwee's Doctor Who. And they were comic stories about Doctor Who. And I, it blew my mind. And, you know, it's odd as we were cleaning the house one day about two years ago. And my wife goes, what the hell is this? Because it's beat to hell. But it was my <laughs> countdown annual. And it was like she found my baby blanket. You know, because I've had, that's my first bit of nerdery, you know. and. Sure. Um, other than that, the only thing I bought were the sound effects record mm-hmm. and the genesis of the Daleks record. Right. I had, um, okay. So now we'll, we'll jump around a bit. Sure. There was nothing in toys. There was nothing in toy stores. You know, at the time, I don't even remember really a local comic shop necessarily that we, that we had, but there, there was certainly nowhere 
I could go to find any of this stuff. So I could find the pinnacle uh, paperbacks. I would get information now and then for magazines and so on. At about this time, uh, you know, or let's say 80, 81, Starlog starts to, not only am I responding to classified ads in the back of Starlog that mentioned Doctor Who merchandise, uh, most of which is from the UK, that these companies were in the UK, uh, Starlog would have these ads in the back for different Doctor Who things, maybe a calendar, maybe a, uh, there was that tin, that, that tin bank, the TARDIS tin with Tom Baker in the doorway, and then eventually... I, I had that. That was like the first piece of merchandise that I got that was close to a toy that I could even find. Stuff like that was being advertised in the back of Starlog, and the, the, the album, the record, you know, audio album... Was it was for me a set? I got it individually, but I also got this set that was offered in the back of Starlog, and it was in a it was you know a twelve inch you know twelve by twelve kind of kind of little uh, case, and inside was the audio uh, with Tom Baker's narration, Genesis of the Daleks, which you just mm-hmm. mentioned, the sound effects record, a single, the Doctor Who theme, the eighty one updated theme with the with the b-side whatever the what the damn b-side was and it also came with a poster which i think was tom baker and canine or something but that's the only way you could get this poster or whatever was get to get this box set so i uh that that's that's what i got and i was i remember being so disappointed when i opened the box because i thought each record was going to be individually what it was on its own, you know, like the Genesis record would have been the Genesis cover. And oh, I see. You didn't get it like that. It was like a, in, a, in an album almost. Just albums in paper sleeves. Oh. Uh, but that was it. I mean, it was, there was really, I mean, drought is even the wrong word. Like there was nothing. Yeah. Barely anything in, in London, which we'll get to, because I'll, I'll, next I'll tell you about the, my first trip over there, but yeah. it, was, it was hard. So you, so you were a loyal Doctor Who follower. Oh, absolutely. And, and I got, it, I, you know, I went in spits and spats. Um, they replayed the Pertwees one summer, like in 79, and I got back into them because they were like on all the time. And, and, you know, I got to watch Pertwees Regeneration into Baker again. And, and I was, you know, I was hooked again in the early 80s. And um, I think my dad took me on a rare trip to the Silver Snail, which was a comic shop in Toronto. Still is, uh, but back then, you know, it was like kind of the mecca, and there, there, it wasn't like it is now. And they had a copy of Doctor Who Monthly. Did you take me there, or did you talk about taking? Me we there drove by I... it. You drove by it. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you, you found Doctor Who Monthly. Yeah, and I picked it up, of course, because I was like, "There's a Doctor Who magazine," you know. And it was, it came with a free sticker of Peter Davison, and it was all about Peter Davison, and I had no idea who Peter Davison was. I think we were still stuck on the key to time by oh. 81, you know? So it was a little bit, um, I remember little, that. Yeah. Now, when did you, so when you were getting them, when you were getting, uh, Dr. Who, how looking back now, how late were you getting them? Were you getting it like three years after the episodes had aired in the UK? We were, we were getting to the point where it was about two, three years. I'd say, by the time we got to, you know, the height of Doctor Who's popularity, we were probably less than a year off at one point, you know, okay. because PBS was playing them in two-hour blocks during Pledge Week, which was unbearable. Um, 
you know, so where you would watch, you know, all of a sudden they would play almost all of Davidson's first season in, in, in a very short time because th- we were catching up, I guess. Right. You know, we were, it was always behind, always behind by at least a year, but you know, it was, it was getting pretty bad for a while there. Which is so remarkable now when I think of it, that, that this show, the way it's come back and just stormed out of the gates, but that we're actually getting these shows simultaneously with the UK, which is so bizarre to wrap my head around it. Same thing for me. Like I, I eventually found out about the magazine through a friend of my cousin's, and I was on a phone call because it was one of those you – know, Doctor Who was – there was so much – you were off in the wilderness with this because it was not a household name. Not all the kids were into it. And so when you, when you met a kid or someone that knew it and was into it, it was a secret handshake. And my cousin used to watch it, but he was on the, I'll never forget, he was, he was hanging out with his buddy at his house. So at the time, I must have been 10 or 11 years old. My cousin was like 12 or 13, and this kid was probably around the same age. So this kid, let's just call him Billy or whatever, he's with my cousin, and my cousin says, hey, Billy wants to talk to you. He's going to tell you about Dr. Yusuf. This kid gets on the phone. I thought I knew the show. He knows the show backwards and forwards and tells me there's a magazine. And, of course, I'm like, uh, no, I'm afraid. I think you're wrong. There isn't. I would, <laughs> I would certainly know about this if it existed. And um, he's like, no, no, it's, it's out there. And he, he turned me on to it. I had to go downtown St. Paul to a, a shop called Schinder's, which was, you know, international magazines, papers, comic books, baseball cards, etc. And... And about about a third of the store was dirty, dirty, dirty magazines, yeah, adult stuff, dirty magazines. So for me to even get a ride to go down to Schinders, you know, my dad was. I remember him being a little suspect, like, "What are you going into Schinders for? Like, there's probably <laughs> going to see some nipples, and I'm not happy about this." Um, and 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 I mean, you that was when the monthly was a glossy cover, but the interior was like newspaper, like it was yeah. just ready to crumble, you know. Um, I don't remember the first issue. I don't re- quite recall the cover, but I remember being baffled by its contents because none of it made any sense. I was used to the layout as well of something like Starlog. So, and, and this was – you can go back and look at the monthly and uh, back me up on this. When you would go through something like Starlog and there was an image – and on the left side of the, the, the left page, left side, there's a big image and then a smaller image. And then on the right page side – there's one image, okay? Well, on the left page, there's a little caption that says photos from top to right. Uh, top, uh, you know, Harrison Ford is back in action as a bottom. And it would describe the photos. Mm. So you knew what you were looking at. They never did that in Doctor Who Monthly. It was just the information was out there and here are some pictures. And it never told you what the hell you were looking at. And it frustrated me because you had to figure out you know, what these things were. So it, it completely baffled me, this, this magazine. Uh, but I started to get more and more information about the show, its history. I certainly, I don't remember being aware that there were more actors than Tom Baker in the part. I, I didn't know any of that stuff. Uh, so my first trip over to London, I've told you this before, I'm looking everywhere for any kind of merchandise. This is 1981 or so. There's nothing. I mean, there is, there is absolute, and I checked everywhere. We eventually, it's about two days before we're going to leave with my mother. We go to Madame Tussauds, the famous wax museum that's been around for, you know, a hundred years. 
come around a corner and there is a waxwork figure of Tom Baker with canine at his feet. And I just about wet my pants and it's like, Oh my God, there's, and you turn the next corner and there's this huge doctor who display at Madame Tussauds, like one giant room devoted to doctor who there's a Fomasi from the leisure hive, which wow. we still seen. There was, there was Tom Baker as Megloss. So he looks like a cactus. I'm looking at this going, why is he dressed like this? What happened to him? There were Daleks, there were Cybermen, you know, loads. In fact, the Tom Baker waxwork, you know this, when they did publicity shots for the five doctors. Yeah, they used him. They used that waxwork and they did the, the photo call with the rest of the actors. And it's terrifying uh, looking. It, it looks like uh, a cross between Tom Baker, Cloris Leachman, and Anne Bancroft, sort of. So we get spit out the other side, about to go into the gift shop, and I'm thinking, here you go. There's going to be Doctor Who toys up the yin-yang. Again, there's nothing. There was a set of Viewmaster reels, which I bought, and a Doctor Who, they're, they're, they're known for this kind of in the UK, around Easter time, they make chocolate eggs. Just, just It's a hollow chocolate egg wrapped in tin foil, and all different companies do it in all different kinds of boxes and premiums. And this was a, I was drawn to it immediately because it was a, a box in the shape of the TARDIS with a little plastic uh, sort of light on the top of the box inside with this Easter egg. And I opened the little door and there is this blonde-haired guy in these yellow pants and a yellow jacket. I had no idea who this was. And my little brain, again, the way we put things together, my brain thought, oh, there, there must be a little kid's version of Doctor Who that airs here as well, like on Saturday mornings. And this must be their version of the Doctor that, that's literally how my brain thought, because I had no idea there were more than one, one actor. So I bought the thing, ate the Easter egg, and inside of it were a little booklet uh, with rub-down transfers, like a Presto Magics kind of thing. Um, anyway, that was my TARDIS toy for many, many years. I don't know what happened to it, but long story short, too late, I know. Uh, about a month ago, after 20-some years of searching, I found this sutured, was the name of the company, sutured Easter egg box, the TARDIS box. Uh, without the egg, obviously, the yeah. box with the booklet and the transfers that have never been touched after all these years. And cool. it's mail about a week ago, and I just about wept because it was like, oh my God, this is exactly as it looked when I walked into the store 30 years ago to get this thing. Uh, it's come back to me all these years later. Yeah, uh, that, that's cool. I remember seeing a picture of that. Doesn't that have sort of a obscene image to it? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you look at the front of the TARDIS and you close both of the doors, there is a Dalek coming round the corner. Uh, so about two-thirds of the Dalek's body is on the – if you're looking at the TARDIS, it's on the left door covering the door, okay? Yeah. The windows are cut out. They're like die cuts, okay? So where the Dalek is standing on the – right where the gun is is still on the left door. The gun is there, and then the laser, you know, lightning, jagged laser bit that shoots out of the gun is on the right door, so the right side of the uh, box on the front. When you open the left side door, there's a little cutout of Peter Davison in the doorway, and the way he's positioned, I kid you not, it's perfect. The laser beam is at a 
90 degree angle in the perfect position where his crotch is <laughs> door and the photographs are hilarious because it's somebody must have gotten fired for this it's so blatant and ridiculous it's like uh, the land of lakes lady yes or the um, there was another one that was rude i forget what there was a c3po thing that was done on purpose yeah on a gum car but there was something else that was that was done that was rude that was really obvious and i forget what it's like that like oh Nobody noticed this when they put the thing together. Um, so yeah, so that that's what I associate everything with. And then, you know, being being absolutely just punched in the stomach watching that episode where Tom Baker went away, mm-hmm. and just understanding that a new guy was going to play the doctor, it just I, it just blew my mind. I couldn't get couldn't get around that. I remember watching Robot with my sister and hating the new the new doctor because he was an idiot. You know, because I grew up Pertwee being so serious, and this guy was a clown. You know, he was, he was making that Titanic joke, and he was acting spastic. And, and, of course, by the third episode of Robot, I was in love with him, so it didn't really matter. But, you know, it it was a weird – it's a weird thing. It's too. weird. It never – it's funny to hear you say that because no one else I know in our age group can reference Pertwee that way. That Pertwee was your guy, and Baker ended up – kind of being off-putting to you because you, you love Pertwee so much. Uh, where Davison was concerned, I mean, I never, while I didn't think he was bad by any means, I never got adjusted to Peter Davison. I mean, to fill Baker's shoes was an impossibility. He, he was such a presence for, for, especially for the U.S., just fell in love with him. Well, yeah, uh, the show, you know, he, Davison kind of took the reins when the show was entering new heights of popularity in the States. And, you know, at the same time, I guess Turner was, was trying to turn the Doctor into more of a flappable, fallible creature. And, yeah. You know? Right. And, and the show got a bit ponderous, I found, too. I, I, you know, it, it was a little lean on action, those first few episodes, you know? Um, like, yeah. I, I, is it Castrovolva? I, I always get Legopolis and Castrovolva mixed up. Castrovolva is Davison's first, right? Castrovalva is his his first. I think his second is Ark of Infinity. No, I think his second is Fort of Doomsday. Oh, Fort of Doomsday. Sorry, you're right. Yeah. Fort of Infinity is his second season. But yeah, you're right. It became he wasn't well served. It got very very cerebral. I mean, yeah. even even some of the stuff in Baker's last season, you can see the the influence that Turner had. He really wanted it to be scientific and smart and. He he tried to push it. I think what he thought was too far in the direction of the fans, as if this is what the fans wanted, and take away some of the fun and the silliness, and get into almost like hard science, which is really strange. Because it never, it always kind of made up its science, you know. Doctor. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it definitely was. I re- I remember that last Baker season being a complete gut punch, in terms yeah. of. You know, here's your new theme song. The doctor's wearing what looks like a costume now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we've got this kind of wistful, overpronounced music going on. You know, with with what like synthesizer flutes. You know, <laughs> almost like a family atmosphere now that's going to be on the TARDIS, where you've got you had Adric and you had uh, Nissa and Tegan starting to come into it, and and also it 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 felt there's only a, a few. To me, semi sort of bright spots in that season where you feel like 
it's 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 the show of old and Baker is in there swinging like he used to. And the first one that comes to mind is a story called State of Decay. Which yeah, is, the vampire episode, right? Yeah, it was it was a Terrence Dick story that was supposed to have happened many years earlier in the in the mid to late seventies, but they pulled it because there was a, a, a at the same time on the BBC there was a Dracula series or miniseries that they thought if they if who did something similar the people would think it was a send up and wouldn't take it seriously, uh, and it got pushed up to Baker's last. Season and it, it feels very much like a Terrence Dix story. It's fun. It's gothic. It's riffing on classic archetypes and themes that have come come before. But it's really the only bright spot I can think of where where Baker sort of is in there again. And you can tell throughout the entire season that Baker is miserable. Now, so he he was married at this point to Lala Ward. Everybody knew this. Uh, the previous season they had fallen in love. They got married. But from everything I've understood and read. Things were very, very bad in that relationship, and to have to go to work where they, there were times where they were barely speaking to each other or Lala Ward would go off in the corner and just sob, uh, there was some drastic weight loss uh, for Baker. I don't know if you, you know this or you notice it. He's very, very gaunt in that final season, and there was some drastic weight loss or an illness. That to this day, I have never been able to find word one on what this illness was, but it was so bad that they had to curl his hair. Oh, his, really? Yeah, his hair always had that natural mega curl to it. Uh, he was so frail and fragile at this point that they had to curl his hair for a couple of the stories. Yeah, I, I don't know much about that. I do know that he talked about his relationship with Lala Ward, and he put it in a way that was so... Like I couldn't have put it this way. He just said, you know, he he said sometimes you these things last two years, you know, and they're they're a wonderful two years, and then it's over. And I just I thought that was a, a brilliant way of putting a relationship, you know. Yeah. And I, I think he was just a passionate guy. And yeah, definitely his perspective. I mean, we and when Lala Ward, the the little she's, they throw quotes at her from him, and she'll just look at the interviewer and go, "Really? He said that? Like, you know, that that sounds like Tom, but that's yeah. not what." That's not true. And it was just one day, all of a sudden, one day, things were different. And when finally confronted, she would say, she would tell the story that when finally confronted, Baker was just like, uh, yeah, I don't think I want to be married anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Just matter of fact. And turned her whole you know world sort of upside down. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's that last season has a very somber, miserable feel to it all around and the stories are very uh not fun and they also the first few stories put him through hell yeah they put the character through a lot of bad stuff yeah uh, it's a leisure hive they they age him yeah and then um meglos they uh obviously they put tom baker through a ton of makeup mm -hmm. the cactus uh, yeah and uh or was it i'm just maybe i'm getting them no that's right that Meglos has is the one with uh, the dodecahedron, right? Yes, and yeah. the uh, chronic hysteresis. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I got completely. I will admit, I got completely lost during the whole e-space thing. I didn't like those episodes at all. Um, you know, yeah. I, I never was an Adric fan. Um, so you done Warriors Gate, and what was was there another e Warriors Gate? Is one I've never finished. <laughs> You know, it's funny. It took me ages to finish that because it is so 
cerebral. It is so... ponderous, and, and it's 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 mostly done on white space, so there's nothing to even look at. You know, it's a weird story. Yeah, far too. I mean, the show was always smart, but it was getting into an area that was far too cerebral. If you wanted to keep introducing a new generation of kids to this show, yeah, took all the, the fun out of those sales. And you know, Turner, Jonathan Turner, never liked how far Tom Baker took the part. He never was a fan of Tom Baker's mugging and goofiness and stuff like that. So he he's the one who pushed him out the door, like it's time for you to go. Yeah, and and wanted to make it this much more serious endeavor. Um, now granted I can be very critical of Baker as well because he, he did get to a point where he was mugging shamelessly in the part and ripping scripts up, you know, and, and not wanting to do anything. Uh, but even time season is really tough for me to watch because of his goofiness. You mean? Yeah. The overall goofiness, there's just sort of a lack of discipline there too with the budget because they, you know, we can we can rip it apart because we're fans and we know the show, but you know, I was never not aware of just how cheap this show was. I mean, I always said, even whenever I had to defend it, if this show had a mega budget, it, it, you know, it would be a whole different story because I, I still say it's the single most brilliant concept in the history of television. There are there are thousands of people you could put in a room for weekends on end to try to come up with something as genius as this this show that that had the longevity that it did and the ability to go anywhere and do anything. And they wouldn't be able to come up with something as smart as the concept. Unfortunately, it had a, a budget of, you know, $73 every episode. But what they were doing, they were doing something that no shows were doing, that, no, that science fiction shows with a mega budget weren't doing, which was a new show, a new story every three, you know, four, four to six weeks. They were making new sets, new planets, new ships, new costumes because it was a completely different story in a completely different universe or planet or what have you um, with no budget. And so for that, what they pulled off with nothing is is very, very impressive. But when it, that key to time, I mean, wasn't there a creature? What was the one? I mean, there was one literally called the creature from the pit. Yeah, the creature from the pit. Yeah, it was just a big, a big caterpillar. It was like a big ball bag, I thought. Was yeah, it? yeah. I, I, I remember there's a scene of it floating out of the <laughs> hall that's pretty, like Billy did the special effects, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, I loved it regardless. Um, yeah. You know, going back, I got to ask you this question because I, I have an answer to it. Is did, Were you open about your Doctor Who fandom in, in grade school and high school? I was I was open about it. I didn't I didn't wear like the badge and the T-shirt you know, around school saying, "Hey, ask me about Doctor Who." But if it came up, I I never shied away. I was like, "Oh yeah, I watched that show. I think I think it's cool." You know. Um, once it got into high school, you know, I'm getting into Colin Baker's first season and and everything changing. I I really started to drift. But there was a couple of there were a couple of guys in in high school. And I remember I went to an all male military academy. Right. right. Yeah. So you know, talking about Doctor Who freshman year was not necessarily going to seat me with the cool kids in the cafeteria. But there were a couple of guys that would watch the show. And at this point, 
the show was no longer, and for several years it'd been like this, was no longer a half-hour episode uh, every day after school kind of thing. They had edited each story into a two-hour movie that would air like on Friday nights on on Channel 2. So I started to kind of put a lot of stuff away and in drawers in uh, in high school, freshman year high school kind of thing. Uh, And so where who was concerned, it just kind of started to go away. Yeah. I, actually, that, my, that's a very similar story to, to mine. Is, is how, how it went away, and, and the same. I think the same cause <laughs> was, was just time to put it away, kind of thing. Yeah, I, I I've told the story on Plaid Stallions that I in grade seven, I think. I, well, I was really open about my fandom. Okay. Um, I had friends who liked Doctor Who. Uh, I got so p- bad that I was in this like youth theater group i was trying to open up a bit and we filmed a short doc a short for the library on television we had to play literary characters so i dressed up as tom baker's doctor who i borrowed a coat i my my grandmother made me the scarf and i I wore my grandfather's hat and i just walked by the camera that was it okay uh it it aired once i've never seen it again and that's good Uh, but i got so buoyed with having friends um who liked Doctor Who, I wore that scarf to school. And what happened was I, I put it on the rack and I went out, I, I went into the class and I forget what happened, but I was walking back to class and, and um, my, one of my friends said, a bunch of grade fives have your, or grade sixes have your, your, uh, your scarf and they're pulling it. Oh no. So I went out and I pushed this kid down who stole it and he called me a name. Turned out I, I ended up living with this guy years later um, but <laughs> basically I realized, okay, maybe I ought to just, you know, tone this down a little bit. So I, I was a huge fan. And then I switched from Catholic school to public school and I lost all my like who friends. Oh, so I tried to keep it real on the down low that I was a doctor who fan because it was a new school. It was a little rougher. Um, they had doctor who novels in the library. I would kind of sneak those out. Uh, but the, I think it was gym class. I'd gotten my mail, and I, I was a Doctor Who fan club at the time. Okay, now this was the – was it like a Canadian fan club? Or yeah, this... it was called the Doctor Who Information Network. Nice. And it had these beautifully illustrated covers, but it was basically like a photocopy you know, thing. And yeah. maybe it was a one-color job. Okay. And some kid in my gym class reaches into my gym bag and pulls out this big drawing of Colin Baker. No. Who I was not all that cool with. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't like Who what? Yeah, and and this kid went, what the hell is this? No. And I, oh, it it was, it took me down a whole peg. Mortifying. Mortifying. And then, you know, I wasn't even into the show anymore. Like, the Davison years, my my interest had really waned. It was It was not not my favorite show anymore. I was getting more interested in other things and obviously girls and, and, but the Baker years, I just, I just shut the door. I was like, I, I can't, I can't take this. Yeah. If, if ever there, I mean, and, and no offense, because I've met Colin Baker and he couldn't be a nicer gentleman and he certainly has gotten the short end of the stick. Where well, he, he's the face of it when it's not really, you know, he didn't write the scripts or, you know, short end of the stick and it, it gets responsible. But if ever there was a time, to walk away, that was a good time to, to walk away. You, you had all, all the reasons. You know, I think about it now, 
I take it back. I did go to I did go to a convention or two in high school, what would have been freshman or, or sophomore year of high school. Uh, one of them was I met uh, – well, you know this. I went to one in Philadelphia. Wait. we gotta, we got to go back here. Before sure. We get um, Merchandise-wise, the only things at this point still, early 80s, are the Target novelizations, 20th anniversary hardcover book. Marvel previews. Use the technical manual. You I had it. Yep. That? Now I would have killed most of my family <laughs> to get any kind of merchandise. But as a kid, I would. I was desperate because you talk about the scarf. Like I was desperate for. I mean, I had a hat. I had some. Of my my grandfather was from Italy, and he was a, a a tailor. So he made a lot of clothing, and he had a lot of old hats, like a Borsellino, and different hats from the you know forties and fifties. And I, I used to occasionally wear one of these almost like a pork pie, but it was kind of like Tom Baker's hat that he that he wore. I wore it just to be kind of a, a hipster in high school and I had a lot of, a lot of um, you know, uh, vintage clothing and stuff. Um, but I wanted a sonic screwdriver. Like, like I, I never understood why I couldn't get a sonic screwdriver, why nobody made this toy, why didn't this happen. When Product Enterprise... Which was a British company, a wonderful British company. I think they're all but gone now. They had the Doctor Who license in the early 2000s, and they flew the flag for the show before it came back when nobody cared. And they made radio-controlled Daleks, and they made um, that eight or ten-inch figure of Tom Baker, limited articulation that talked, and the Cybermen that talked too, right? that talked and the little Daleks, the smaller Daleks that talked. They eventually got the license for the Avengers, the TV show. So they had a, a John Steed, Emma Peel, 12-inch figure set. I mean, they just made beautiful Well, beautiful. They, they made Gay Ellis from UFO, and I'll love them forever for that. Yes. I mean, it just – and they made a Christopher Lee. Dracula. Or Dracula. Yeah. Well, they made a prop replica sonic screwdriver, you know, metal – with a spring in it, didn't make noise, and they, I became chummy with them, and they sent me one as a gift, and I just loved it. And then, you know, five, six years later, Character Options with the Master Toy License finally made not only a Tom Baker, but a John Pertwee sonic screwdriver that I would have carried everywhere with me as a kid had it, had it ever come out. So cut to, again, merchandise nowhere. I mean, every now and then a classified thing in the back of Starlog, you know, or in some of the British catalogs that I would get, I'd see the odd item that I'd read about in the magazine that must be an exorbitant amount of money. It wasn't until my first convention, my first sci-fi, fantasy, whatever you want to call it, convention that I ever went to, which was in Philadelphia uh, at the blah, 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 blah building. Uh, one of the guys, a guy called Chris Height, who you know is a poster on the Mego Museum boards. I believe he goes by Chris. Yeah, and, yeah he goes by uh, Chris Height over on the Geek Shell Inherit site. Yeah. He's a big fan of the show, always writes beautiful stuff about us and, and loving the show. Nice cat. Nice cat from Philadelphia. So when I started talking about this on the show, he went back to not only all these locations that I loved in Philly, but the site of my very first convention and took pictures. He held up. The Biff Bang Pow retro Tom Baker figure in front of the building in his hand and took photographs, said, this is where you were back in 85. So 1985, 
My brother's going to school at Rutgers in New Jersey. We go out for a visit, go to Philly, to a convention where I meet Mary Tam, the Very first cool. from Doctor Who. And that's the first time I ever saw a Doctor Who merchandise that I had only read about. Like there were talking Daleks and the, the Palatoy stuff. Yeah. A few other bits and bobs that, that even then were incredibly expensive for me as a, as a 14, 15 year old. I became a monster because of Starlog. When I was 13, I got a, I read the ad and it said Talking Daleks $25 in Starlog. So I went and got a U.S. money order, which is something my parents told me as a kid was really hard to do. Turns mm. out they were lying. And I mailed off the money. <laughs> nothing happened. <sighs> And my mom, I remember my mom saying, don't tell your dad that you just pissed 25 bucks away, you know, and it wasn't until I I remember I sent it off the last week of grade eight, the first week of grade, the first day of grade nine, it arrived and it was a boxed Palatoy talking Dalek and it made me into a complete monster. And I, the first thing I did was I ordered like everything that, I think it was um, Jep- Steve Jeppy's Comic Warehouse. Okay. Um, and I ordered the Radio Time special, uh, you know, the, for the 20th anniversary. Wow. Um, I, I ordered all this crazy crap, and I got addicted to that that mail order thing. The, th- the thing that really blew my mind, though, was my first convention, which was in Kitchener, Ontario, where I yeah. got to, where I not only got to meet John Pertwee, but he sat next to me for like an hour, wow. yeah, which blew my mind. Um, was this guy had vintage toys? Wow! And that was the thing. It was like he had a Warzel Gummidge doll in the box. Wow! He had all these vintage records. He was this vintage toy dealer. There was one dealer in the room. Okay. It was a room full of pocket. You know, somebody had books. This guy had vintage stuff, and there was somebody making like Tom Baker scarves and stuffed. Cybermats. Wow. And that was it. And that was the greatest dealer's room I'd ever been in. You know? So what you're saying is besides and I'm I'm on I just decided to jump on eBay <laughs> real quick. Um just to give you an idea. We're going back to the mid eighties and I can't recall exactly what these things cost, but I'm looking at something right now. Here's nineteen Palatoy Talking Dalek nineteen seventy five does not talk, no box, uh is going for about seventy dollars US. Yeah, they I, I sold mine, and I wish I never had. But I, you know, in college, I needed food, so. Die! I, I need to get a Palatoy talking Dalek in the box. I've never owned one. I'm looking at this here. They range between 270 to like 350 dollars boxed working uh, Palatoy Daleks. But if anybody's listening and they want to get a fundraiser going or a Kickstarter, oh, can- Kickstarter, buy us toys. That's a good idea. Uh, so, so what you're saying is you managed to you managed to get through the mirror, and not just magazines and books and things like that. You were able to get merchandise. Like you got a Palatoy talking about what other classic merchandise did you were you able to get? Well, I, I couldn't find a lot of vintage. I lucked out on that talking Dalek, but I will tell you that my second bit of luck was the store in a mall. And it was an odd toy store that had a lot of closeouts, you know, like Action Jackson outfits and old Star Wars figures. And they had the Denny Fisher War of the Daleks game, which was this huge, odd game. Box, yeah. And it had little Dalek figurines you spun around. It was five bucks. And I have no idea why it was there. Um, But it was my second big vintage toy score. 
You know, I ended up getting on one of my trips. In fact, it might have been a trip to London in 90 when I met with uh, an old pal who uh, maybe he's even listening called Andy Foley. He had a, he had a toy th- uh, company called TV Toy Zone. It's where I got a lot of – we're, we're all, I'm an old customer. Okay, you know – that's right. I remember you know the name. He um, found me the Dennis Fisher, Tom Baker figure. That's the first time I ever got him. I got him from him on a trip over there in 90. And the same trip, I went to a vintage, you know, a, um, a uh, blah, 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 what do you call a antique mart. And I bought two of the little Dalek figurines that came with the game on their own. Yeah. I paid five or six pounds each Dalek just to get those uh, those little things. They're awesome. But, I still have one Dalek. I also got on oh, that same trip. I got a Rolykin. Oh. I got the, the Dalek Rolykins in the box that probably ran me ten or twelve pounds at the time. But now I think they're upwards of you know thirty, forty bucks a piece. Those little tiny Daleks in the boxes that they made millions of in different little little colors. And they had a ball bearing in them that just kind of you know rolled around. But that was it. Like I could never afford this stuff. I could never. I certainly could never, you know, find it anywhere. The 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 interesting thing about the connection I had to Britain, uh, to the mail order business in in the UK, and I think it was called like Star Tech. Star Tech. Something. Uh, Star, Star Tech was out of Atlanta. I traded videos with him in the eighties. Something like that. It's Tennessee. Something, something along the lines of something like that. Um, they, the catalog was always like, uh, a big, long piece of paper that was folded in half. So it was like, if there were 30 or 40 pages, it was a really big fat catalog folded in half and stapled. And the type was so tiny. You could barely make out the pricing and stuff. The very first time I ever had jelly babies, I ordered them through this company along <laughs> with some, some, you know, I was, I was hooked on the magazine uh, and the Doctor Who magazine, but also the specials. Um, oh, yeah. Obsessed with obtaining all of the specials, the winter special, the summer special, the fall special, whatever. When you ordered from the U.S. to this U.K. company, I swear to God, I was like 11 years old ordering from this place. If you sent cash, if you sent U.S. cash, you got like a 30% discount. <laughs> Tape cash to an envelope? And I mean, down to the coins where I was taping coins to an index card, wrapping money around it, sticking it in a round piece of paper in a little envelope inside a bigger envelope, take it to the post office for whatever the cost was to mail it. I never lost a, a dime. I never didn't get my merchandise. But I think about this 11-year-old kid filling out the order form and doing the percentages and stuff and mailing off cash <laughs> to the place and always got my stuff. And the day – that the bus would drop me off on the corner. You could walk down to my house in the middle of the street. When you got about a third of the way down, you could see the mailbox. And if I saw like a brown package or a brown envelope or something sitting on the, I mean, I, the pulse quickened, you know, and I just started running. And it was always one of these packages from the UK that had my Doctor Who goodies in it. I, I actually found a diary I had from like 85 that tracks what I ordered and how long I had to wait for it. And it's an eternity for some of this stuff, like six weeks, eight weeks. You know, in the days of PayPal, it seems like, you know, I, we, we are spoiled, rot babies. 
And I, I, I can get a package now. I can order something from the UK and the, somebody can mail it on a Monday. I sometimes am getting it by Friday or Saturday. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Get this stuff. And this was airmail. This wasn't surface. The guys you know, that, that I ordered from always sent it airmail. I, you're right. It was like between six, eight, ten weeks before you got this stuff. And when it showed up, oh, my God. One of the guys that was, I was friends with, I had a, a sort of pen pal that I found through the – the monthly or something, and um, we became buddies and 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 you know, you know letters you know every every couple of months. Uh, he would want like the pinnacle paperbacks and and certain U.S. things through the like the U.S. fan club and such to trade me for U.K. stuff. So the first U.K. annual that I ever obtained was from this guy, and I had only you know these were mythical. These were these books that like. You just sort of read about in the monthly. I have no idea what it was supposed to be exactly, um, but I just I poured over every page. I mean, they were disgusting books. They were bizarre, and the artwork is disturbing to say the least <laughs> in these books. But I I love them. Yeah, yeah. I I, I remember having a, a couple of the annuals and and some of the. It's like these are for kids, you know, just bizarre drawings of Baker and and kind of grotesque caricatures almost it was like the artists didn't they didn't it's not like the bbc opened its archives and said here take whatever you want for reference they had like oh. no yeah. materials um for any of this stuff because it was just bizarre um i think i i, I reviewed a couple weeks ago a doctor who coloring book on plaid stallions that it's obvious that whoever drew it had Maybe three, four stills. <laughs> you know, uh, because a lot of it. One a picture of Baker. He's wearing like a three-piece suit. Yeah, or like with a tie flapping in the wind, and it's like, oh. The worst bunch always. The worst served in any of the annuals were always the women. Unfortunately, every yeah. like, and it was like, oh, like she's maybe out of the show, or she might be in it, but they just they always looked like a hybrid of three or four different female companions that have been on the show. The artist just had no idea who they were drawing or who these people were supposed to be. Yeah. But that was like the big Christmas item every year was that friggin' annual that just was – I mean they just – it's so bizarre to me. And I, I've, I t- I've talked about this before. I think I might have even mentioned on the Geek Show Inherit uh, podcast. You know, in the, in the mid-60s, James Bond was, was the shit. I mean, it really was. The Bond in the mid-60s was Star Wars. It was just global and a huge phenomenon, and uh, the money those movies brought in, mm-hmm. just intense and amazing, uh, even today. Yeah, we, we, we will have to devote a whole show to that. Oh, we have to, because there's so much I've, I've never been able to talk to about Bond, because Daniel Pickett, as you know, has never seen a Bond film. So we can, you know, we, I can't talk about it. But, um... Merchandise-wise, there was that period, 65, 66, where Bond – there was just buckets and buckets of Bond merchandise. But A, uh, there were issues with Connery's likeness, and so he was on certain things and he wasn't on other things. And yeah, so, I remember there's a board game where it flips from being James Bond to generic guy. It's And Lone Star, too. Lone Star, the cap company, uh, cap gun company, they did a couple of items that had drawings of Connery. They did another bunch of items that had a photograph of a guy that kind of looked like Connery holding, you know, the gun. Um, but but really, 
the 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 gist, the, the main thrust of what came out for Bond was related to Thunderball or the Aston Martin or Cap Guns or whatever. There was never like an uh, an action figure range. I mean, there was a twelve inch doll and some things like that. For Doctor Who, for a show that that is, you know, now we're talking fifty years, loads of actors playing the title role. Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of creatures and, and companions and so on. Really, you go back to the mid-60s and it was Daleks, 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 Daleks everywhere. It's just 95% was just Daleks. That was it. And so one of the items that was non-sort of Dalek and kind of represented the show was the annual. And it would yeah. come up every you know uh, November, December, whatever it was. And it was the big Christmas item. Um it was just the, the – I would look at this stuff when I finally started to be able to get certain things in that early 80s period. When I finally got my hands on this stuff, excited as I was to get it, I always felt like – I felt – there were times that I felt – have you ever you, – you must in your years of collecting and, and, and areas that you've collected in or things that you know about, you must every now and then come across a, a foreign item from like – you know. I don't know, Bratislava or something that is so weird or the artwork is just bizarre. Or you just feel like they had 50 cents to come up with this item. They put a sticker on it and it got out the door. Oh yeah. There are times when I look at some of the UK stuff that was official BBC licensed product that it, even back then in the early eighties, it felt to me like just something that came from another planet. Like this is what you guys came up with. With this wonderful show and like all the possible, like that's the thing that you want to make, like a, you know, I mean, you know this. There's a there's a there's a Doctor Who Tom, <laughs> Tom Baker item from like seventy six seventy seven. There's like a there's like a pen and pencil set mm-hmm. and like a yo yo, and, and then baked beans. <laughs> there's a there is a poster that was a mail away from from baked beans, but no, he's then, on the that, tin of baked beans. Like, mm. <laughs> yeah. right. Um, no, there's one. It's like the yo-yo. It's the same series. It's like a yo-yo, and it's a pen and pencil set, and a safety scissors, and then a label maker. Underpants, too. Yeah. It's like yeah. a label maker. It's got like his face in the middle of it, or the logo, and it's a label maker. Yeah. You know, plastic strips that you would put your name on stuff, whatever? Yeah. It's like, this is what you guys... This is what you're messing around with with this amazing property. So, um, you know, now that we have the license too, it's like it's pure ego on my part to go, yeah, I get to make some of this stuff now and, and finally, you know, I get to play in that sandbox. But part of it is I'm trying to correct all this, all the wrongs. For any of you listening that love this stuff when we were younger and are in the same boat as Hyler and I looking, you know, the way we, we scoured the earth for merchandise, uh, then I'm doing this for you. Where Biff Bang Pao is doing Doctor Who stuff for you guys that we never got, basically. The um, the TARDIS tuner is always one of my favorites. I know you were obsessed with it too. It's basically what is it? A transistor radio. It's an AM transistor radio that has this. This was something that was an, uh, a comic strip style ad in the back of Doctor Who Weekly before it even it. Became, uh, advertised this thing, and I became obsessed with it because. It's just so weird and stupid and silly, but also because in 1979, when advertised, it retailed for 20 pounds. Yeah, it was hugely expensive. Expensive. Like, how many kids could actually 
send away for this thing. It was also a mail-away item. There weren't a lot of Doctor Who mail-away items, but you could not just walk into you know, whatever store over in the UK and get this thing. So I looked for it for years, and then our mutual pal, well, you introduced me, um, uh, Bill Frost. Uh, if you're listening, Bill, we love you. Hi, Bill. Uh, over in the UK, came across one for a reasonable sum of money, and uh, I ended up getting it mint in the box. It, it plays the radio, obviously, and lights up on the front, but the intergalactic space sounds are would, you know, make a cat commit suicide. You know, you just brought up something, too, about merchandise. And I know it's not – it's Doctor Who related, but it was obviously through a different company. But as a kid, I had a Dalek annual because these annuals were sold in Canada, I guess, because of the U.K. connection. Um, and it was Daleks killing people on the cover. They were shoving people off a cliff. As you do, as they do. Yeah, yeah I remember – like that was completely normal to me <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> yeah, they were – okay, let's get to that thing because we're about to get to um... – some of the actual stories. The Daleks, is, is, even if you have a surface knowledge of Doctor Who, you know what the Daleks are because they are the sort of, I mean, they're not the Professor Moriarty because that would be the master, but the Daleks are as synonymous with the show and the property as the TARDIS, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, uh, some people love them and think they're fantastic and most amazing thing in the world. Um, and some people think that they are the silliest, most ridiculous concept. But as anybody who knows about Doctor Who lore remembers, the second story introduced these creatures. And it was not like the show was going to go off the air after the first story, but the, the ratings went through the roof because of that second story that introduced the Daleks. So in a way, they really opened a huge door for the show and for history. They kind of pushed things along. Um, on that note, Daleks or otherwise... Did any of the creatures or bad guys or monsters ever disturb you or scare you? Or um, did you think as a kid, like, what is the fuss about these Daleks? Uh, Daleks kind of scared and intimidated me because that was my first episode was Day of the Daleks. And I think I watched that because the Ogrons look like Planet of the Apes uh, well, characters. And, and I think that's what caught my eye to the show. But the Daleks were kind of scary and intimidating to a five-year-old. Now I don't I don't get it. My kids don't get it. They have Daleks everywhere, um, and I think that's their charm. Is they're a bit scary, but they're also a bit like, oh, that's a fun toy, you know. Um, what about them? Because I can tell you for me what it might have been that scared me. But what about them specifically scared you? I think it was that they were shouting. Yes. Yeah. That was it. If I could if I could pinpoint anything, it would be. The, the 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 manic sort of nature that they just, you're just like oh god calm down are you you're not gonna kill me are you just calm down please calm down and maybe this is one thing you can agree with me on Doctor Who may not have had the most convincing monsters but they always always went that little extra let's give it a really creepy voice you know and totally. that that really put it across sometimes you know um, yeah, it made up for whatever it lacked in the in the prop department and the and the, yeah yeah. Well, I, I give it to him because uh, name another show with with four times the budget that was able to come up with new creatures and new sets and new costumes and new ships and new ship interiors, what have you, every story. I mean, there are times where they you can see that they're shying away from, you know, creatures or monsters in a way because they can't afford it or they, they can't certainly can't get an army together. You know, you can do anything you want now. 
but you couldn't back then. Well, you, you can look at a show like, let's say, Lost in Space, where the recycling was so bad that you'd see it on Time Tunnel and on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and what's the other show? Land of the Giants by the time it was done, you know? Totally. Yeah. Uh, what What other, any other creatures that... Um... Oh, um, you know, it's almost systematic. The giant spider in, uh, oh boy, uh, the last Pertwee show story. One of the spiders when he went to Metabolus. Yeah, that scared me because she killed Doctor Who. I didn't understand what was going on. and, and you Dude, know. did you call him Doctor Who? I, I'm pretty positive I did, yes. Um, and then I would say uh, right after that, the one that totally blew my mind would be Ark in Space. The guy turning into a bug. Yeah. Um, just, it, it, you know, you, you talk about Alien. It was kind of Alien before Alien. And right after that um, uh-huh. was Seeds of Death. Or Seeds of Doom. Seeds of Doom, yes. Seeds well, of Doom. About to get to this, we're talking about our, our, our stories. Uh, I would I would agree with you. The Daleks never scared me, but they kind of disturbed me. Yeah. Uh, with the with the with the screaming and everything, and the seeds of um, the seeds of doom. That whole concept of a, of someone being taken over uh, and and becoming something else, and then what it what it, it was. It wasn't like I was scared, like I couldn't sleep at night, kind of thing. But it was. I knew something was wrong with this and this guy was really going through a lot of pain and discomfort or whatever it becomes this you know monster obviously but yeah that was uh one that kind of kind of freaked me and um davros in general that whole show and we'll get to it again in more in more in depth but davros the creator of the daleks i found very very disturbing and unsettling only that first story that he was in and every other time he's shown up has never had the same effect as that first, yeah, that I can first see story. That. I can see that. Um, you know, the Seeds of Doom also had a... By this point, they had swapped out Dr. Dater on TVO for someone... I, I can't remember her name, but she called herself the Undoctor. And I believe she was a science fiction author. And now they discussed the science fiction of Doctor Who. And I watched... After the first episode of Seeds of Doom, I watched her open forum on the episode. It, it, kind, of, it kind of bothered me, that episode, so I watched it. And they were all comparing it to a show called Quatermass, which I had never heard of. I was like seven. And, you know, now in hindsight, it's like, oh, yeah, it was a Quatermass story, basically. Yeah. Yeah. um, That was a creepy – well, there was Quatermass and the Pit, I believe, was what what aired on television back in in Britain in the 50s. Yeah. It was a feature that I think Hammer did. Maybe. No, there was a bunch of them. The Quatermass in the Pit, the Creeping Unknown. Uh, Quatermass was a you know uh, a running serial, I think, in the UK. Wasn't the first one done by Hammer though? I thought. Well, they, they did. They a couple companies did theatrical versions of them in the same way that On the Buses got movies and 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 Doctor Who got movies. They they started out as TV serials, and, and maybe I'm wrong. It's just something I. But Hammer did do one of them. You're absolutely right. Uh, I think it is the I think it is the uh, five million years to Earth. Yeah, I think so, and it's wonderful. I have I have actually the old uh, TV ones. Um, we could obviously you can tell in this first episode already we could talk all day. We can chaw. Yeah. So we should probably start wrapping it up. Yeah. Uh, but let's let's get to it. Top five 
top five stories in no particular order uh, from the uh, the old show. You want me to go first, or you? Please go. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with Day of the Daleks. I already kind of explained why. Um, it scared me. I was five. It turned me on to Doctor Who. Okay. Uh, Monster of Peladon. Okay. This is the second Peladon story or the it's first? It's the second Peladon story. Uh, just left a mark on me as a kid. I <laughs> really liked this consortium of aliens on a planet. Um, the, 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 the story itself interested me, and I love the Ice Warriors as oh. a result. Yeah, and I just it's just strong memory of it. Like I I can watch it now and go, oh, I remember this, you know. Um, robot, I love I love regeneration stories as a whole for the most part because it introduces introduces you to a new doctor and they usually get to walk around in the new the new outfit. Um, mm-hmm. I've always loved that robot, and because he's so tied into the Baker merchandise. Like yeah. there's, a, there's a puzzle of him, and there's, of course, that wonderful Denny Fisher action figure. And it's it's a beautifully designed piece. So I, you, I love that episode. Did you ever get the Build-A-Figure, that first wave of character options to I, build? I never finished it. I never bought all the character options. Beautiful. It's yeah. just it's just just gorgeous. Just I just love it. Um, and yeah, right. It's a, it's a brilliant design. Yeah. Um, Sorry, go ahead. You you were on, I think, oh, number sorry. three. Yeah, uh, no, that was number three. Number four is Ark in Space. Nice. I still say that's one of Baker's bests. Um, yeah. I, I can – a good friend of mine once gave me his entire DVD collection of Doctor Who. These are just stuff he taped off TV. Um, so I was able – it was a generous thing to do, but I couldn't sit through some of the old stories. Mm-hmm. It just can't. But I used it as a period to – why did, you know maybe I'll like Davison's stories better now as an adult, or maybe I'll like Baker's story, Colin Baker's stories. Uh, but Ark in Space is one of those things I bought on DVD and still enjoy, um, and I can watch it all the way through. And that that is uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is in that is within Baker's first season. Correct? I believe it might be his second story. I think you're right. I think it was like Robot, Ark in Space, Genesis of the Daleks, Revenge of the Cybermen. I mean that whole first couple of seasons of his right out of the gate is they really wanted to hit the ground running with uh creatures and you know fun 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 uh, it's it's a real it's a real gangbuster season and then uh, i had a lot of trouble with number five because it, it, there's a three or four really great baker stories that i could put in there um runners up would be like terror of the zygons um seeds of doom but i had to go with pyramids of mars Oh, nice one. Okay. Because I love Sutek as oh. a villain. You know, uh, he's scary. You've seen uh, our figure, right? You've seen. Uh... Yes, I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just think he's a brilliant figure, by the way. A brilliant idea for a figure. Um, Thanks. I, I that, that's one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, that that one especially is just one of the more solid Hinchcliffe. Tom yeah. Baker, Doctor Who. So, you know, I, I really could have made this a top ten, but that's my top five. Well, unfortunately, you're you're because we're so similar with a lot of this stuff. Not only are you taking some of my thunder, uh, <laughs> but it, it it was more difficult to come up with than I thought because I should have clarified this from the start with this stuff. I love uh, Doctor Who. I have a, I have a huge fondness for it. Obviously, huge amounts of nostalgia. Um, and, and affection. We obviously have the license, all this stuff. But I'm not the guy that has every single story on DVD. 
that has all the books, that if this thing comes out with this doctor, I've got to get every one of them. I am I, not that guy. I used to be when I was much younger. You know, I had to have every single Target paperback, whether I read them or not. Um, whereas, you know, Bond is concerned, James Bond, you know, I've got to have every film. I've got to have whatever version have come out on DVD. I've got to have every single film, whether I watch Octopussy once a decade or whatever. It doesn't matter. So having said that, you know, I, I'm not the guy that has every single story. I've seen every story, but um, it's a very specific sort of era that I love. And I tried to, to, to um, pan this out a bit so it wasn't just – or, you know, spread the love a bit so it wasn't just Tom Baker. Tom yeah, Baker. yeah. Uh, so in no particular order – uh, uh, Genesis of the Daleks. Genesis of the Daleks, when I think of Doctor Who, that's the first thing I think of. It, it, it seems to be, to my recall, the first story that I, I ever saw. Um, uh, it, and it blew my mind. It was, it's an incredibly dark story. It's very much trying to um, be an you know, homage, for lack of a better word, to fascism, you know, Nazi Germany and and uh, Davros being this dictator and the, the brain drain, getting all these scientists together to come up with stuff. And, and it's it kind of rewrites the canon, doesn't it? It does. It's sort of, it's sort of, yeah. And it's like, he's on assignment from the time Lords that have to, you know, go off and do this. There's a lot of really heady, heavy moral uh, decisions that sort of get thrown up. Like, you know, you've got to go back. The whole gist of the story is go back and stop them before they even get started so they can't cause destruction and wreak havoc throughout the universe. And then when it's sort of are those moments where Tom Baker's doctor has to sort of be pushed against the wall and be the guy to make this universe-altering decision, then there becomes this morality about, well, do I have the right to do this? You know, if it, knowing, that, knowing one particular outcome of a future, do I have the right to... It's, it's, I just think it's a great story. And it, it got sort of bad-mouthed Many years uh, ago, it, it was sort of people thought it wasn't a very good story. And then people started to come around and it was always like in the top five, top ten, you know, polls, like best of all time sort of stuff. But that's that's right up there for me. And to me, it's the single best design and paint scheme of the Daleks as well. And in I'm going to say Michael Wisher is the man. I think, who I think it's I think it's Michael Wisher. You're right. I think the the second Davros is named Terry Malloy. Why do I know that? Um, um, Michael Wisher gives the single greatest Doctor Who villain performance in the history of the show. You know, I, I love that episode too. The only thing that keeps it off my list is that I found that it's too big a scope of story for the show's budget. Yeah, and I believe it was also a six-parter, wasn't it? Yeah, but I mean, like they—they're really trying to show this grand, this grand war, and they really get screwed on being able to do it, do it justice. You know what I mean? You're right. It, 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 had they had a little more money in, in any department, yeah. uh, it would have only made things, things better. So Genesis of the Daleks, uh, The Seeds of Doom, which yeah. is uh, Baker's second season. It also is a, is a strange – and I'm, I'm hoping people this turns people on. They're going to want to maybe watch some of this stuff and, and give it a try. It's such a strange thing too because you, you were talking about Pertwee being no nonsense, no sense of humor, and you thought how goofy Baker was. Pertwee is known as the man of action. Yeah, he's uh, a bit of an ass kicker. And the James Bond films were huge then, and karate was big in the in the cinema and stuff. And he was doing Venusian Aikido and you know punch, punching people's lights out and stuff. Baker and none of the rest of them really did that. But in Seeds of Doom, it's almost as if this was a script that had been written for Pertwee, 
But they changed it for Baker because he kicks the crap out of everybody in this story. He snaps a guy's neck at one point. His neck, he, he's holding a gun? Yeah. Point, jumps through a skylight, too. Jumps through a skylight, which is one of my great... My, and for years, I couldn't... You know, before the internet, this line was out there, and it was always in the back of my brain, and I couldn't figure out where it came from. I just saw it the other day. I, 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 and it's, it's this brilliant line... He, he, you know, Sarah Jane is tied up and something horrible is about to happen. Like they're going to feed her to the plant or get the plant. Yeah, they've got the plant open. That's right. Screaming. She's tied to a chair. There's a bunch of henchmen. He's on the roof. He jumps through a skylight, knocks a guy out, unties her. I think he's got a gun. He's He's about to go to the room. And the bad guy says to him something along the lines of, oh, bravo, doctor. What do you do for an encore? And Tom Baker says, I win. Yeah. And runs out the room, and it's genius. It's 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 a wonderful story. It's very much uh, an, an homage to, I think, the thing, the Howard Hawks uh, film, the thing from another world, where it's because it starts out in the Arctic, and there's this pod that they find, and so on. I just love it to bits. Uh, the invasion is up in my top five. It's the, the Cyberman, the Trouton one, the Patrick Trouton Cyberman story. Uh, I have a real soft spot for Patrick Trouton and his his. Uh, his uh, portrayal of the doctor. I think it's, it's, it's just wonderful. And it's such a, just the genius of the show itself, which I've already gone on about, but the fact that someone else pushed the boat out even further and said, well, why can't we have a different actor play the same guy? Yeah. And he'll be a little different. Like, Jesus, really? How, what, you know, what are they drinking in their milk? Um, so Troughton, I think is wonderful. And the invasion is great because it's a Cyberman story. It's very heart of mod, London in the 60s, which is my favorite era. It's uh, a beautiful image seeing the Cybermen busting out of the sewers like that. And, and the steps of St. Paul's, you know, the cathedral, yeah. the brigadiers in it, and Benton's in it, I think. And it's just great. Uh, you know, so few of his stories even exist that uh, survived. But even better, when people go to find this, if they go to watch the story, it's, it got released on DVD. With an animated episode, right? With two animated Oh, two, yeah. Only have the audio that survived for two of the episodes and no image. But based on all the artwork and the stills and the footage they have from the previous episodes, they animate the the two episodes that are missing and it in black and white. And it, it yeah, it's genius, too. It looks great. It's genius. Um, yeah. I was going to throw in the, uh, the one you mentioned, or the Dalek story. There's a Dalek story... That is is like a four or six part story, and it ties in with the next story directly. And it's like Frontier in Space, I think, is the second story, and the previous one is Day of the Daleks. Or well, no, no, I think Frontier in Space starts it, and then it turns into Planet of the Daleks, and that's where they're developing invisible Daleks or something like that. For a number of reasons, but I decided not to, and instead, my last two are Pyramids of Mars, ironically. Yeah. Uh, for all the reasons that you stated, it's Baker at one of his best performances. He and Sarah Jane, their chemistry is is, is genius. I love the supporting characters, uh, and Sutek is yeah. just that that mask is such a brilliant design, and the voice is just so and very little. And finally, um, City of Death. Which, Do you like City of Death, eh? City of Death, because I'll tell you for a number of reasons. Obviously. Because it was written by Douglas Adams. Yeah. I love Douglas Adams so much. Um, it's just a fun romp that plays with time travel. It's got Julian Glover in it. Mm-hmm. Who any 
genre fan knows was uh, General Veers, I believe was the name, in Empire Strikes Back. He leads the invasion on Hoth in the, in the Adats. He's uh, Donovan, Walter Donovan in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's right, yeah. Uh, a villain in For Your Eyes Only in the Bond. He's a giant uh, a baby that grows up real quick on Space 1999. I did not know that. Yeah, he, there's an episode where a baby gets turned into an adult. He was actually in a previous Doctor Who serial, uh, Marco Polo, I believe. That's right. In the 60s with, with Hartnell. So his genre pedigree is extraordinary and and today he's or he was I don't know if he's still in it is a supporting character on Game of Thrones so this guy is a genius British actor he's been around for a hundred years but more than anything I shall never forget the first time sitting and watching City of Death whatever episode it was this TARDIS is uh, hidden out he's hiding it and and the Doctor and Ramana come in and just blow through the Louvre, and they're going to walk right into the TARDIS and take off. But just before they do, there are two people standing in front of the TARDIS talking about its merits as a piece of art in the most pretentious terms possible. And the two actors are Eleanor Braun, who came out of the London improv comedy scene in the mid-'60s, just like all the Pythons, and John Cleese mm-hmm. standing in front of the TARDIS. And I, my mind was not only blown, it was blown and fell on the carpet and I scooped it up and tried to put it back in and it got blown again because the thought that my beloved, you know, Monty Python and John Cleese and those could could somehow cross into Doctor Who just did my head in. Like, oh my God. It was almost as if somebody's listening to my dreams at the BBC and said, let's make this kid happy and do this thing. Um, so that's why I'm throwing it into the top five. And it's a, it's a wonderful story. I think it's a lot of fun. I but really the fact... love the design of Scaroth's ship in that one. Oh, it's great. The round with the three legs and the... And the way it moves is really neat. thing that spins around its, t- its, uh, its t- midriff, you know? It's, oh, it's great. So, that's so a, yeah. That's there... a good one for nerds, too, like me, because that's got Maya from Space 1999 in it as well. Uh, she's her... the she's the countess, Catherine Shell. Catherine Shell, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Now, see, we could, I could, we could do another hour on this. I mean, uh-huh. just well, we could uh, probably revisit it. <laughs> yeah, but there's a nice primer for everyone to sort of know where we've come from and and why we love it, and hopefully turn some people on to some stories they maybe haven't seen. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Successful test of a first first episode. It should literally be called, you know, two guys jibba jabbing. The long ramble. The long ramble. I love it. Yeah. Ramble. First blood. Part two. The long ramble. No man. I'm I. The doctor. So, so, so there, there you go. There's an episode. Tell us what you think, because there's more where that came from. Absolutely. You know, wait till we get to the episode devoted to uh, Big John, Little John. Oh my goodness, yes. I've got to brush up. Minute episode right there. Yeah, yeah, and and the whole kids from Caper show. It's from Caper. Yeah. You know, we do one. We got to do one about Monster Squad because that's one of your beloved things. Yeah, I, I think that I could probably 
prattle on for a half an hour about that show. I don't know who would want to listen to it, but you know, and, and then then chime in. But uh, but uh, on, on that note, um, we're you know also we always would love suggestions if anybody out there is going well. You know, you guys are really boring. Uh, stop talking. You don't have to put that in. We we're, we don't need to know that. But if you like what you're hearing and you think we can apply some of this uh, brain power to, um, to a particular subject or topic, then we'd love to hear about it, right? We, we'd all, yeah, and we'd also love to hear your ridiculous childhood schoolyard rumors. Oh. We, we all heard them. Um, you know, uh, let, let me try and think of one that I heard. Um, when the war talked about it, Warriors came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie. My school got hit with what looked like black marker graffiti that said "God's Eye Gang," okay. and the rumor was that the God's Eye Gang had moved into my town. <gasps> I, I lived in a suburban community that, you know, if you drove five feet, you saw a farm. When the manure got spread. You knew in the schoolyard that manure was being spread. And my town was affectionately referred to as White Bee because it was so ethnically diverse um, in 1978, when whatever the Warriors came out. So it was obviously one of the stupider things that I was actually worried about. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so that would that would be one of my stupider schoolyard rumors. And we'd love to hear some of the ones you've, you've heard over the years. I've got more. Um, but we're going to spin this off and into you know into the show. We're going to also talk about some cringe stories, things like that that relate to growing up in early fandom. Yeah, for any of you out there listening, cringe story would be either something that you had to witness or be part of or hear or see in front of the folks or someone that maybe shouldn't have been in the room at the time or the theater, whatever it might be. Uh, all about adolescence and, and childhood. Um, schoolyard rumor, just real quick, I'd throw one out. Do you ever hear this one that? That that do you remember when when Bubble Yum and Bubblelicious came out? Uh huh. Well, Bubblelicious was the one. I mean, it, it really upped the ante because Bubble Yum. I mean, people ta- sat, stood around and talked about Bubble Yum like it was penicillin. Like like like, how did these geniuses at the gum place come up with that? What is it like? Soft and makes big bubbles. And um, yeah, I guess gum was mostly hard before that. It was hard and thin. It was yeah. thin. You know. Yeah. Nothing like it existed. And, um, and then, of course, you had the um, Bubblicious, which upped the ante by making, you know, this gum. You can blow bubbles and it can smack on your face and, uh, and not stick to your face. Well, this was, I mean, this was clearly the devil's work because no one, no human could have come up with this. But I always heard that the reason that Bubble Yum was so chewy and so tender and blew such great bubbles was that it was made from spider's eggs. I think I heard that, yeah. And I believed it. Did you stop chewing it? I did for a while, yeah. yeah I and did. Then one day, I think I mentioned it to my dad or my mom or something, and, and my dad verbally like smacked me like, are you serious? You're this dumb. <laughs> my son this thick. <laughs> so right away. But, uh, but those are the kind of things we're looking for, folks. So... Uh, please uh, bother Brian. Write to Brian at, on the museum or the. You can uh, get me at brick at pladstallions.com. There you go. Perfect. That'll be our uh, Addy. Or you can contact me through the Facebook page, Plaid Stallions Facebook page, which you could like. 
Please do. And I hope you like what you've heard so far. There's lots more where that came from. Yeah, please give us feedback. And um, and we'll be uh, recording about once a month. So uh, the, there's lots of time to catch up or give us suggestions for shows. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks very much. And before I even wrap this up, I just want to say what a, what a pleasure and an honor it is to even be asked to, uh, to do this and participate uh, by you, uh, Brian. So thank oh, no, man, I appreciate it. I, I definitely can't do this uh, single-handedly and, and really appreciate the leg up. Yeah, man, count me in. If I, it's a show that I would listen to. <laughs> I can't listen to shows with my own voice. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you like it. Let us know what you think. And um, we'll, we'll hear you or see you very soon. All right. Well, I don't have a sign-off, so I'm just going to say talk to you later. Mm-hmm.